brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Janice O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keelan. Today on Razor, we delve deeper into our DNA and take a closer look at who we really are. I went to the University of Cambridge to look at how the Human Genome Project can be more diverse. We already know certain populations are at different risks of different types of diseases, and so it's important to be able to contextualise against a reference genome for those populations. And Joe Coleman investigates how our DNA can actually dictate our diets. So we have uh, cartridge, nutrition cartridge. So when you put your sample inside the nutritional cartridge, then it detects uh, the gene related to nutrition. Sounds delicious. It's a big old science sandwich. The Human Genome Project was one of the most ambitious projects undertaken by science. An international team of scientists spent 13 years mapping our genetic data, pinpointing and laying out the sequence of all of our genes. That's right, kids. Even scientists had to share and work together and play nicely. In fact, it's vital to solve the world's issues. However, there is a problem. 70% of its first DNA sequence came from the genetics of just one man, while the rest came from about 50 other volunteers. Their data formed the backbone of the Human Genome Project's first DNA sequence, which has since become a reference, the standard to which every human DNA sequence is compared. I went to the Wellcome Sanger Institute to talk to Dr. Julia Wilson about the project. We need to be able to compare lots of genomes at the same time. From, from those early days, we compared, if I got my genome sequence, it would be compared to that original human genome. And who's to say that original human genome was representative of me or you? And so what we do now is compare multiple genomes at the same time. If you imagine a sort of strand of rope, so we need to be able to see, you know, that's, you know, compare multiple genomes to see where the differences are and where those differences could lead to, dif to diseases or could lead to risk of diseases. And so it's, we need many, many more genomes to be able to understand how, how you know, inheritance, genomics, and, and differences between populations. Well, yes, and, and you know, we have to start somewhere, but now we see efforts to sequence um, different and more diverse populations. So there's efforts in Asia to sequence thousands, hundreds of thousands of Asian genomes, there's a, a project in Africa to, um, to understand um, diversity in Africa as well. And so because there could be subtle differences between populations, we already know certain populations are at different risks of different types of diseases. And so it's important to be able to contextualise against a reference genome for those populations. Mm. The world is crying out for more diversity, but it's amazing that we actually have to ask for it in the Human Genome Project. I guess I just automatically assume, Shani, that everybody was looked after in this. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot we still need to learn. And actually mapping the human genome was already a massive achievement in itself, but we still need to broaden it further. There's so much information out there that we don't know yet, I guess. But um, look, the cure for cancer, AIDS or dementia can potentially be found in this project. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the more we learn about all of us as individual human beings, the better we can get at healthcare. But do you know what? I was absolutely fascinated 
about how exactly their mapping happens and what it means in practice. So I went to speak to Sumit Jamwa, the CEO of Global Gene Corp, a company that's spearheading efforts to diversify genomics by collecting genetic data from India. If you look at the megatrends, the ability to convert the biological information into machine-readable information, that is sequencing, has become faster, better, cheaper. You know, from $2.7 billion to a few hundred dollars, from 13 years to a few hours. It's phenomenal. On the other side, we have advances in machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, and cloud compute. So we know that AI is one million times better over the last 30 years. It's going to be another million times better as per predictions over the next 30 years. And so there's the potential of quantum computing. <laughs> absolutely. Could change absolutely. everything. Absolutely. So you have these advances. But the thing which is holding back genomics and realizing that promise of genomics for each one of us is the fact that we don't understand what good looks like for different human beings. We, what, what? we, we don't understand what good looks like for different human beings. Good. Good. What is the reference? Because this was supposed to be a reference genome, but we know that this reference is not valid for me, Sumit, who is from South Asia. Right? So it's, it's understanding what does good look like for Sumit. It's understanding that the, the, because I understand what good looks like for Sumit, I may be able to find also solutions for diseases which have application on a global scale. Right. So examples like, uh, you know, there was a discovery for a cholesterol-lowering drug called PCSK9 inhibitor. What they found was that they studied the Icelandic population and they found some people never had high cholesterol. And they said, uh, what is the reason for that? And they found that there was a particular gene called PCSK9 and PCSK9 was inhibited, which meant that it was, you know, the, the, the activity it had was inhibited. And they said, well, that's really interesting. In my cohort of people who never have high cholesterol, what if I applied the same thing, the same, um, to a global population? Does that work? And the answer was it did. I just found this story so fascinating, Shani, because, you know, something as simple as broadening the number of genes we map, although I know that's not a simple thing, but, you know, just by doing that, we can cure diseases and help people live better lives. And I, one of the visions that came to me when I was watching this story, I just remembered it now, that, that shot of you looking at this giant book of life with this huge magnifying glass. Yeah, and it was one book out of so many. And it kind of made my mind boggle that life is just so complex. And even to try and document that takes so many lines of text and so much coding. But, really, I mean, those, those books you were talking about, it was, what, there was acres of them, weren't there? There was, like, multiple different levels and different sections. It was like a library. Yeah, chapters, I mean, multiple volumes. It took a whole shelf to store them. And that's just based on the DNA of one man. You know, if we were to try and collect information from a multitude of people, I mean, factor that information by... A huge number. I mean, it's just a lot of data. What about the ethics of this? I mean, initially, my, my thought was, oh, why did we, you know, map out the white guy? What about everybody else? I mean, and also protections of all these sorts of things. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of almost controversial data protection issues. Um, but I just really feel like science is about collecting data and understanding things. The only way that we can unravel the mysteries of our universe is to collect evidence. And so I'm all for it. Um, and in terms of ethics, it's about providing more accurate information. You can only do that by 
gathering data. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you on this one. I mean, the, the more I, I, more science stories I do, it's, as you say, it's collecting data. But I do feel that there need to be regulations around that. Scientists do need to be able to do the things they do to find these cures. But yeah, there's, there's got to be a, a little bit of controls. But you know what? Scientists are really focused on collecting the data. They're not interested in having an opinion about it. And so much work is putting in... So much work is put into the technology to sequence and gather and sort and look for trends and patterns. And that's really the job of the scientists. What you do with that and the kind of perspectives you take on that information. That's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Somebody else's problem to sort out. They can just show the, they can solve the science and leave the, all the regulations to the lawyers. Exactly. So we shouldn't. You know, I often find this with various different stories, particularly climate change, for example, that the scientists get such a bad rap and all they're just trying to do is collect data. They're not making uh, opinions on it. So, you know, as we are always so loyal on Razor in doing is that we celebrate the work that scientists do and then all the politics we leave to other people. You know, all of that is great, but it seems to be happening far away from the public. What are the real applications? What are the practical uses for everyday people like you and me? Yeah, I know what you mean. So how does this apply to us right now? Well, a new company has found a way to look at how DNA testing can help us make better nutritional choices on a day-to-day -day basis. DNA Nudge is a company that uses on-site DNA testing to narrow down our food choices and help us all improve our lifestyles. Our colleague Joe Colin went to their offices to find out more. DNA Nudge is a DNA company, but then what's different between DNA Nudge with other DNA companies? We do DNA tests here. We don't send your sample to a laboratory. So everything happens here locally, and then we don't keep your DNA sample. So you just do a one-minute cheese walk, and then your result will be directly sent to your app. Yeah. So uh, first of all, we will launch, so our product is about nutrition. So we have a cartridge, nutrition cartridge. So when you put your sample inside the nutritional cartridge, then it detects uh, the gene related to nutrition. Then it gives you a personalized recommendation when you go shopping. So it's not saying you can't have, um, like you have to have fruits, you can't have biscuits but then you can have a biscuit, but then have a better biscuit based on your DNA. So my DNA literally has food preferences that I wouldn't necessarily be aware of unless I was aware of what my DNA profile looks like? Yes, yes, yes. So for example, if you are a higher risk, so your health cannot handle uh, sugar, then um, a, a, a package of biscuits that is less sugar will be better for you. But then everyone are different. That. And I've got, actually, I've got to say, this this is a pop-up shop in the centre of London. It's just on the street in Covent Garden, just like, you know, where you go and get your nails done or anything else. And then there's this little shop, DNA Nudge. So in there, this little device can say whether or not you are predisposed towards a certain diseases, like hypertension, for example. And also, quite crucially, it all happens on site. So there you are in your little shop. Your DNA sample is, is taken and it's destroyed after the test, Shinny, most important. And according to DNA Nudge, a little device replaces at least five people in the lab um, who would have had to be involved in an otherwise quite costly testing process. That's just so amazing. So you literally wear a wristband that 
can scan barcodes and compare your DNA information with whether that food's good for you. It's just so useful because, you know, when you hear of good cholesterols, bad cholesterols, you never really know what kind of food has what in it. And so this sounds mega useful. Chris Tomazu is the founder of this company and tells us how he's helped to foster a culture of innovation that led to DNA Nudge. Um, I then uh, helped create the UK's first institute of biomedical engineering. Uh, we managed to break some of those silos of Imperial College and a lot of institutions basically mm -hmm. where, you know, electrical engineers work with electrical engineers, mechanical, mechanical, chemistry, yeah. chem and medicine. So I created the UK's first institute of biomedical engineering, which became almost an interdisciplinary hub, mm. a playground for innovation. Right. And it was really fascinating, actually, to see that even though engineers didn't understand the language of medicine and clinicians didn't understand the language of engineering, that naivety, that interface between these sorts of different disciplines is where all the innovation took place. It was the sort of what ifs. Yeah. So we were able to sort of innovate. And one of the things that came out of the Institute was this idea of being able to sequence DNA, particularly with technologies like this. Do you know what? I find it so incredible that this technology has filtered down to our everyday lives. The fact that you can go into a pop-up shop is just mind-blowing. Um, and what I also love about this is the fact that there's this cross-pollination of different disciplines within science, different people getting together who wouldn't have otherwise spoken to each other. Mm. And we, seem, we keep finding that with the stories we're doing, aren't mm. we? It's, it's just this collaboration constantly, and they would never move as quickly with the science that they're, and the research that they're doing without this kind of collaboration. Totally. Um, i tell you another thing, though. There is a real personal reason for why DNA Nudge came to be. It became very apparent that, that machines... Robots could sequence your DNA, mm -hmm. you know, I mean times have come now where you can get robots taking samples, etc. So, so I realized that, you know, we could sequence the human genome and we could look at billions of bases in human DNA. And then uh, we could also look at the errors of DNA. Now that was really, really interesting because around the time that I came up with the way that you could sequence your DNA on these sorts of optical and electronic microchips, my son Marcus lost his kidneys through a renal predisposition, which was really unfortunate. Oh. He was around eight years old, and, and, and it, 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 it was something that actually is still in my mind that, that you know, we couldn't have prevented it from happening. Okay. It was meant to happen. It was in his genetics. It was in his genes. He yeah. had a mutation for renal failure. Okay. However, we could have managed his lifestyle differently if we'd known about it. I see. It's almost like saying, you know, you've got a mini engine and that mini engine is growing in a Rolls-Royce car. <laughs> right. <laughs> what we wanted to do was manage that mini engine growing in a mini car. Yeah. So when his kidneys did collapse, they collapsed in style. I mean, you know, in, in a way that, they, that all the side effects wouldn't have been apparent if we'd managed it properly. Okay. So I think that that gave me a huge stimulation to say, look, let's not just sequence your full genome. Let's use technologies that could detect whether you've got one of those errors that we've detected in the genome. 
We should add there that um, Chris's son is fine, which is uh, really fantastic. But I think what I also picked up from him there is that whole, you know, we could have managed his diet better. And I think that all of us, you know, we're always wanting to be healthy and all that sort of thing. But there's a little bit of me that really doesn't want to know what foods are, are bad for me because they might be all my favourite ones. <laughs> you know, Emma, no, no more chippies for you. Right. But, you know, Chris's story really hits home how... Uh, important it is to understand what we're made of but it does open it does open up that whole sort of thing of you know the more we know you know does it become more troublesome and you know do you do you worry about it more and you know oh I shouldn't have that and I shouldn't have this and my grandfather always used to say to me Emma everything in moderation that was usually when I was standing next to the cookies but uh look I guess there there are people out there who have a lot of allergies and everything else this kind of stuff it it could be life-saving and vital for them um, which is really important, but yeah, there's a little bit of it's like I don't want to, I don't want to know, I don't want to know that I can't have chocolate anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it does open up some other questions, doesn't it? Like it, it does. Like first of all, why is a private company driving this and not government? Yeah, this this question popped up. Um, I'm doing a few stories on Mars at the moment, and and you know, if you remember the initial space race to the moon, and it was all about you know the American government and the Russian governments, and it was all about governments back then. But of course now we're seeing it's all about entrepreneurs. Elon Musk is coming through, and all these smaller companies, and and sometimes, you know, maybe you don't want to be bogged down by the red tape that is involved in government departments, and there's only ever a limited funding, isn't there? So sometimes you need. Uh, companies that can get funding from elsewhere, whether it's through you know um, investors or whether it's from uh, crowdfunding or whatever, so they can push this forward. Because otherwise, you know, it can take a hell of a lot longer than than it you know needs to. Or we, you know, we really don't want it to take that long, do we? We, we want the answers now. That's it for this week. If you'd like to watch videos from this episode, go to cgtn.com/europe and click on Razor. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll catch you again soon. Bye. Bye.